Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The withholding of recess has long been a punishment tactic for teachers when kids misbehave or miss assignments. Now, there's growing momentum to pass laws that protect recess time and prohibit schools from taking it away to punish kids. Research has shown that unstructured free time is important for child development as it fosters good social, communication, and coping skills. For more on the fight for recess, we'll speak to Jackie Mater early education reporter at the Heckinger Report. So this is a really common punishment. It's been happening for a long time in schools. When I was interviewing experts, a lot of them said, oh, I remember this happening when I was a kid. Yeah, same um, so, yeah, we all, we all have those stories. We remember it happening. But there's been a growing understanding of both the importance of recess and the benefits that come with that, an understanding of the importance of free play, especially for really young children. And at a time when, you know, they're sitting in schools learning more academics than ever before. And so this time is really important. And then at the same time, pediatricians and child development experts, they're starting to say, this isn't the most appropriate punishment. There are other punishments that may be more effective, but going a route that can be more punitive or even stigmatize a child and doesn't really follow a natural consequence, right? Like a child may not be able to track, I didn't get my parents to sign this form and now I'm sitting out at recess. So it's just not the most appropriate punishment is what child development experts are now saying, even though it is common and it has been common for a long time. You know, on the face of it, and just kind of anecdotally, as I mentioned, I do remember this happening to me as a kid, right? You mess up. It's like, well, now you got to sit down and don't move for, you know, the half an hour, 20 right. minutes, whatever it is. You know, as a kid, yeah, definitely you feel like that's my only free time, my only outlet. It's so stressful. 
here and yeah, I messed up and whatnot. And but you kind of look forward to those moments. So on the face of it, yeah, I mean, I tend to agree that it it is a great outlet for the kids and all. But on the teacher side of things, I mean, how do they feel? What do they do? What are some recommendations for other things when you know they're at their limits a lot of times too? They don't know how to discipline the kids. Right. That's a great question. And it's true. I mean, teachers need ways to manage their classrooms. They need to be able to enforce the rules. Kids need to learn. You know, you do have to follow rules in school. We're trying to keep everyone safe and we're trying to learn. Part of the problem that, you know, teachers talk to me about and schools and administrators talk about is there often aren't enough supports for teachers. So if a teacher has a really challenging behavior from a child in their classroom, you know, a lot of schools don't have social workers or counselors to come in and say, hey, we're going to get to the root cause of this issue. You know, for some kids, I talk to plenty of families whose kids have disabilities, so they need more support and maybe, you know, punishing a kid because of a behavior that may be due to their disability isn't the right way to go, these parents say. Instead, they need more support, maybe from the special education team. But we know teachers are lacking. So there's definitely, it's a hard time for teachers. And I know a lot of teachers are leaving the field. And many say, I mean, surveys have come out to say classroom management is one of the main reasons why teachers leave. So, you know, two things can be true. Teachers need more support. Kids need more support. And we can, you know, come up with some more effective and what experts say are developmentally appropriate punishments. And to your question, some of those punishments may be, I mean, I talked to a pediatrician who said, in general, stigmatizing adults is inappropriate. So we don't want to do that for kids, especially really young kids. Something like explaining why we have these rules so kids understand why it's important. Offering positive reinforcement. So maybe even offering an extra recess, right? And kids can work toward earning that. So they're not losing the one recess they have. They're working toward a reward. And I talked to a classroom management expert at a teacher training program who said, you know, they really teach their teachers to work on this kind of positive reinforcement instead of negative reinforcement system with their students. So there are alternatives. The problem is, do teachers have the time, you know, even the knowledge, they may not know some of these routes and the support to roll out different methods in their classroom. Yeah. And when you're managing 30 kids or whatever the number may be, it's, it gets really (laughs) increasingly difficult, you know, and we, you know, just hearing stories throughout the pandemic and coming back to school, right? Kids were uh, not as developed because they missed that time in school and in that settings and we heard stories about fights breaking out and everything so it's totally tough on that so so the movement now right there's lawmakers in a number of states and you know obviously a lot of individual school districts too that are looking to either pass laws or policies that say well no we have to have this recess time for kids It, it you know you can't use that taking it away as a punishment Yeah, that's correct. So right now, there are about 12 states that limit this in some way. Most of them say you can't use physical activity as a punishment or withholding physical activity as a punishment. So that includes recess. Very few outright say you cannot take away recess as a punishment. Illinois is one of those states that just passed this in 2021. And now four other states are considering this, Oklahoma, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. They all have bills moving through the legislatures right now that would specifically ban withholding recess. So there is kind of this growing understanding of, you know, like you mentioned, you know, children are behind in their development. That includes social development. And there's this a lot of, you know, mental health concerns for children. So this growing understanding that, hey, maybe recess is something that needs to be protected to help with all of this. And the best way to do that may be creating this law so it's not an option. 
I think a lot of people would argue, you know, on the flip side, you also have to support teachers with other options. Totally. But it, it has <laughs> been shown that states that have laws to protect recess time, those schools in those states are more likely to have recess time. So there is some evidence that laws are kind of the way to go if you really want to protect recess. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a difficult conversation. As you mentioned, it's important for the kids, but the teachers need some resources also there. So we'll continue to monitor this conversation, see what happens with it. Jackie Mater, early education reporter at the Heckinger Report. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You might have been hearing a lot about bird flu. Currently, it's wreaking havoc on farms across the country, wiping out 36 million chickens and turkeys. The virus itself is really bad for the birds and has a near 100% mortality rate, but it's actually the culling of these birds that is claiming so many of them. If one bird gets infected, the whole flock must be taken out. The bird flu has already spread to 32 states, and for more on all this, we'll speak to Kenny Torella, staff writer at Vox. So it's the Eurasian H5N1 bird flu virus, and it originates in wild birds such as ducks and geese, known as waterfowl. And on their migratory pathways, they shed the virus, whether through you know their waste or shedding the virus and it lands on a farm worker's clothing or farm equipment. And that virus then enters these barns where, you know, in today's egg and meat industries, um, there are tens of thousands of birds per barn. And so if one bird in the flock gets infected, it's likely that the rest of the flock will become infected too because this bird flu strain is highly transmissible among birds. It's also highly lethal. It has a nearly 100% mortality rate. So it is a huge headache for egg, turkey, and chicken farmers because if one of their birds gets infected, they have to kill the whole flock. And it's actually USDA policy as a way to slow the spread of the virus. And really, you know, that's what's killing the majority of them, not necessarily that the the bird flu has infected so many birds and chickens and and turkeys and all that is is what you mentioned, right? If one of them gets infected, they have to kill out the whole flock because as it spreads, it's pretty bad for the chicken. So it came to the U.S. in about January. It spread to about 32 states now. Tell us what it does. I mean, this could be hard for a lot of people to hear, but for the chickens, they have trouble breathing. They get diarrhea in turkeys. Their wings can go paralyzed. It's it's pretty horrific for them. That's right. Yeah. And within 24 to 48 hours, these birds can experience just horrific conditions when they become infected. Like you mentioned, turkeys' wings can become paralyzed. They can experience tremors. Chickens have trouble breathing. And so... The industry is in a tough spot right now where really all they can do to slow the spread of the virus is to call the birds, to kill them. And they're doing that using a variety of pretty excruciating methods. One of them is using firefighting foam to suffocate the birds. And then another method that is increasingly being used is called ventilation shutdown. And it's when farmers close off the air vents in a barn so that the temperature and humidity begins to rise to such a point where over the course of you know one to four hours, the birds die by heat stroke. It's incredibly painful for them, but the you know industry has decided it's it's a way to do it quickly and pretty cheaply and so it's been used on the rise in the last few months and when you do find you know a bird that does get infected i mean you're supposed to start acting on it within at least 24 hours or something right you're supposed to get on it really quickly and these are unfortunately they're the approved methods right now that we have 
That's right. Yeah. As soon as one positive case is detected, farmers, producers, USDA officials are kind of working against the clock to try to slow the spread of the virus. And at this point, killing birds, as horrific as it may be, it's kind of their best option because there's no effective vaccine against the bird flu right now that that's available in the U.S. Yeah, some, I, in your in your story, I noted there are researchers working on some type of vaccine that's something that could help. But they say, realistically, they're five years away from something that could even be working. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's a hopeful timeline. The trouble with vaccines is that the current vaccines that that are available, one, they aren't highly effective, but two, they are made in such a way that producers can't tell whether a bird is infected or whether they just got the vaccination and they're not infected. And that means that it's really hard to do trade. I mean, much of the meat and eggs that we produce here in the U.S. are exported to other countries. But if those other countries can't tell whether a bird is actually sick and infected or just vaccinated, then they're not going to import any meat or eggs. And that that, that poses a a big problem um, for the U.S. poultry industry. I mean, it's a totally unfortunate situation. And as you mentioned, right, it happens with migratory birds flying overhead. It's something that's really tough to stop on that front. But coming off of the pandemic right now, the thing that we're dealing with and how we saw that this virus jumped from animals to humans, the question begs, right? Uh, how does this work with the, the bird flu? From my understanding is we don't have much to worry about, but there has been uh, an occasion here or there where there has been some crossover infection. That's exactly right. The bird flu, it's highly transmissible from bird to bird, but not from bird to human and also not from human to human. So if someone is going to get infected from bird flu, they are definitely going to get it from a bird directly. So this mainly concerns people who work in the farming industry, which is just a very small percent of the U.S. population. It so far is not spreading from human to human, which is good because, again, it's a highly lethal virus. However, this strain that's going around right now appears to not be as lethal as past strains. There have been two people, one one man in the UK, one man in Colorado, who have been infected, but that's because they came into direct contact right. with infected birds. But this is a bigger problem in other countries where larger percentages of the population, say in China, are working on farms and thus the bird flu does pose a larger threat. But right now, you know, virologists don't see it as a, as a major threat to humans. However, the longer that the bird flu spreads between birds, the, the more opportunities it has to mutate and potentially transmit from human to human. Sure. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's something that we can get uh, under control and it doesn't continue to spread. As I mentioned, it's already in 32 states, so it's tough to stop it once it, it keeps going. But that's why we have to go to these extreme methods of culling out the birds there. So we'll keep an eye out for all of it. Kenny Torella, staff writer at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Oscar. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. 
the war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver. And this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Finally for this week, very soon you could start seeing ads on your favorite streaming platform. Netflix has long been a holdout when it came to placing ads during their content, but a huge loss of subscribers has them scrambling for how to make up the lost revenue. To that end, a cheaper pricing tier with ads could be coming by the end of the year. For more on why it makes sense, and if viewers will stick around for it, we'll speak to Peter Kafka, senior correspondent at Recode. For about a decade, uh, Netflix has been streaming without ads. Periodically, people would say, when are you going to add ads? And Reed Hastings, the CEO, would say, nope, nope, nope. And they kept saying, no, it's an easy way to add revenue. Why don't you do it? No, no, no. Netflix is a better service because it doesn't have ads. 
this quarter, like you mentioned, Netflix lost subscribers. It's going to lose 2 million more subscribers the next quarter. So instead of just slowing growth, which is sort of anticipated, it's now going backwards. And that's absolutely connected to their decision to say, you know what, we are going to offer a cheaper version of Netflix without. And it's quite, it's quite a startling turnaround for them. They've made no ads part of their identity, and now they're changing it. You know, and you mentioned in the article too, right? There's a few reasons why it makes sense. There's a huge amount of money in TV advertising, billions of dollars, and it keeps growing every year. You know, and, and the cost of making these programs and running these platforms has also ballooned, right? Everybody's doing their own programming, their their originals and all that, and that's expensive. And they're just not making it on the subscribers alone. For a long time, Wall Street was happy if Netflix kept growing. It didn't really care if Netflix was profitable. In fact, for a while, Netflix was losing billions of dollars a year. And Wall Street said, that's all right, you just keep growing. And then everyone else in the TV industry got the same idea. It said, all right, we're going to stop trying to make money as well. We just want to grow our, our streaming subscriber platform. That's the plan. And then in the last year or so, Wall Street said, you know what, actually, I think we'd like you to make some money, too. You can't just grow subscribers. You need to actually grow profits. So not just Netflix, but everyone else now has to figure out how to make more money from streaming. Uh, We know that consumers want to stream stuff. uh, And now it's up to the industry to figure out how to give the consumers what they want while making a reasonable amount of money. And, you know, these platforms, I would say, you know, another angle on this, they have tons of data on the individual users and, you know, the family units. They can leverage that data in a lot of different ways. I mean, obviously, that's where where we're going with the ads. So, you know, it all kind of makes sense to keep going that way. And one of the things you brought up in in your article about this is the implementation has got to be super important. You know, for me as a streamer, I stream a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. You know, if it's a pre-roll or a post-roll, I kind of don't care at that point. But if you're starting to cut in the middle of the content, right in the middle of a show, that's where things start getting iffy. And and Reed Hastings even said for himself, you know, he wants to outsource a lot of that stuff. Let another company do it. And that's where it seems like it's going to get really messy. It's hard to imagine that Reed Hastings would be comfortable if Netflix had a similar experience that some of the others streaming services have. And you can check out things like Pluto or Tubi or even Peacock, where it looks like there's not even a human involved and and some computer has just randomly dropped in ads. You would think Netflix would go out of its way to avoid that experience. And they might, but that will involve money and time and expense. And Netflix is trying to tell Wall Street, we want to add ads. That is, we want to bring in more revenue, but we don't want to spend a lot of money to do it. So something's going to have to give there. But again, a reminder here, if you like Netflix without ads, if you like HBO and HBO Max without ads, if you like Disney Plus without ads, you can continue to get that even as these guys introduce advertising-based tiers. Um, The idea is to bring in consumers who aren't streaming, who aren't streaming that service and say, look, it's now a lot cheaper with ads. And by the way, Hulu, who's been doing this for a long time, says it makes more money from its advertising-based tier than if it's a more expensive tier without ads. So there's a way where this works for everyone. If you want to pay a premium and not have ads, you can do that. If you want a cheaper version with ads, you can put up with that. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with it. You know, will programming start being filmed with ad markers in place? You know, are they going to give it a chance to fade to black, let the commercial pop in and then pop back, even though it's made specifically for streaming? That'd be interesting to see. And and you're right, you know, to your last point about pricing. You know, we're going through this period of high inflation right now. 
people are price sensitive with all this stuff and you get every streaming platform now it's a, a, the same as a cable bill you know for HBO with ads it's 9.99 without ads it's 14.99 Paramount Plus $5 with ads $9 without ads you know so where will the eventual landing position be for Netflix is also an important thing and they've already said look we we know that that if we introduce a, a cheaper tier some of our paid subscribers who are paying for some of our subscribers who are getting the, the service without ads might migrate down. So we have to negotiate that too. We have to figure out how to make it attractive enough to bring in new subscribers without getting some of our current subscribers to sort of trade down and pay us less money. Definitely. Yeah. I'm not uh, angry at this whole thing, but the implementation part of it, I think is going to be huge. So that's, uh, that's where we'll keep an eye out. They said at the end of the year, maybe they might have this thing ready to roll. Peter Kafka, Senior Correspondent at Recode, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts